We're going to welcome Nigel up. Um, Nigel, as some of you may know, has a background in education, so it's, um, I'm particularly excited to hear what he has to say to us uh, this morning as he, as he leads our, our talk. So I'm just going to uh, pray for him, and then away to you. Father, we pray that you would bless Nigel as he speaks, that by your Spirit you would place within him words that will reveal your transforming love to us all. And we thank you and we pray that you would empower him now as he preaches your word. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. And it's a privilege to be here on Education Sunday and have the opportunity to speak uh, on this very important day in the year. Uh, For those of you that uh, don't know my background, I began my uh, teaching career at an 11 to 18 boys uh, independent school in Croydon, South London. Uh, I then moved to a comprehensive, mixed comprehensive 11 to 18 in Hertfordshire uh, for nine years where I was a head of modern languages and a head of year. And then I spent 23 uh, extremely enjoyable years at Hillsborough Sixth Form College, where I had a variety of roles, but for most of the time was an assistant principal, looking after all the student guidance matters, which covered admissions and uh, tutorial, pastoral matters, careers guidance, and so on. Uh, And now I'm just adjusting to retirement uh, and to new horizons here in Camborne and enjoying four grandchildren. So education is an ongoing process, having had two daughters that have been through the system and now beginning to wonder what the life has in store for four grandchildren. And for, ed- for me, education has been very much a vocation, not just a job. And I think we need to celebrate the achievements of everybody involved in education, recognise the challenges that they face, and consider how best to support and pray for them. Now, the media normally seeks to identify issues and problems, always keen to turn conflict and differences of opinion and failures into headlines. And it's unfortunately very rare to find good news stories. And here are some of the most recent headlines about education from the last... Right, we've gone too far. From the last 10 days. Have a look through... Teachers might be smiling at the one that says Gove denies attack on Ofsted chief because uh, teachers know that there are two Mikes in our lives, Michael Gove and Michael uh, Wilshire, and when they have a go at each other, uh, we think they probably deserve each other. <clears throat> and if you've been listening to the news in the last 24 hours, you'll realise there's another row brewing over the fact that the current uh, uh, head of Ofsted has just been, is about to be replaced and being accused of political manoeuvrings on that. And the very last headline I put up there, no laughing matter, comedy nights and charges for extracurricular activity, of course that comes from our local principal of Combatant. Uh, pointing out the fact that Cambridgeshire is still by far the worst funded educational authority and schools have to do everything in their power to try and get enough money to make the place run properly. So in this context of all these headlines, how can we as Christians engage in the educational debate? How can we support those in education and focus on what it's really all about, which I believe is the growth and transformation of individuals so that the whole of society can be transformed Let's begin with a story. In 1918, just before the end of the First World War, a young boy was born in a tiny village about 10,000 miles away from here. Initially, he was brought up to look after sheep and cattle in the fields, and his mother became a Christian 
through the influence of two men from another tribe. And at the age of seven, the young boy was baptized into the Methodist church. One of the men suddenly said to his mother one day, your son's a clever young fellow, he should go to school. Now, no one else in the family had ever attended school. Despite his mother's surprise at the suggestion, she mentioned it to his father, who despite, or perhaps because of his own lack of education, immediately decided that his youngest son should indeed go to school. And so the young boy began his education at the local village school at the age of seven. Then he moved to a larger school, linked to a Methodist mission station at the age of nine, when unfortunately he had to live with his guardian after his father's untimely death. Then for secondary education, he transferred to another Methodist boarding school and eventually went on to the University of Fort Hare, founded by Scottish missionaries, the only residential centre of higher education for blacks in South Africa. As you may have guessed by now, the young boy had been given the English name of Nelson by his first primary school teacher, and the name stuck. And Nelson Mandela's life had been transformed by education, as well as being strongly influenced by the Christian principles of the teachers who had set up and taught in those schools in South Africa, at a time when education for the black majority population was extremely rare. And many years later, as the country's first black president, Nelson Mandela was to say, education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. And it's hard to think that those early missionary teachers could ever have imagined what the future held for that young boy in their rural classroom. That they were one small piece of a jigsaw, moulding a life which would facilitate, with the help of others, the eventual transformation of the country of South Africa. And personally, I find it highly probable that Nelson Mandela's display of forgiveness and reconciliation after his release from years of imprisonment, leading to a relatively peaceful transition to democracy in the 1994 elections, found its roots in the values taught in his early Christian education. Because education is about so much more than the formal transition of knowledge, transmission of knowledge to be assessed through examinations, highly important though this is to equip young people for the world of work. It's also about the values taught, the attitudes absorbed, the character being moulded, which in turn can benefit many others as young people set out in life, often full of ideals, to influence and perhaps transform their world, whether local, national or international. So what needs to take place to enable this transformation to happen? We read, thank you very much, in the passage in Romans from Paul's letter, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform, be transformed. Now, the context of this exaltation originally was Paul urging Christians to recognize that true worship means offering themselves fully to God to be transformed in order to discover God's will for their lives. But I believe it can have a wider application in our world of education. We must all be aware of the huge pressure on young people 
to conform to the pattern of this world. Consumerism driven by advertising, pop videos, social media influence of Twitter and the like, the growth in sexting via mobile phones, cyberbullying, young people sharing their feelings through self-harm or suicide websites. It's very hard for parents and teachers to keep up with these trends and know how best to protect or influence young lives. Remember that recent headline from earlier, online abuse outpacing protection. And the reality of some of these issues hit home to us very closely when in the village where we lived in the 1990s, two young students towards the end of secondary school took their own lives in successive years one of whom it was discovered later, had spent a great deal of time on a suicide website. However, by example and sensitive discussion, unhelpful conformity can be identified. Young people can be encouraged to move away from the crowd at times. But let's never underestimate how difficult this is or the power of peer pressure that they face. And the only way for this to happen, I believe, is the renewing of the mind. So the values and perspectives change, leading to a change of habits and actions. How easy it would have been for Nelson Mandela to have conformed to the justifiable anger and bitterness and hatred felt by the majority of the black population of South Africa after all the persecution and oppression they had suffered collectively and after his own 27 years of imprisonment. But it seems to me that he chose not to conform to this majority viewpoint, but was transformed by a renewed mindset, recognising that the only viable long-term solution for the country was reconciliation with the oppressors, and a long road to learning to work and live together, thus avoiding the bloodbath predicted by so many. And how similar this transformation is to some of Jesus' sayings, which challenge the mindset conformity of his day. Just one example. You have heard it said, love your neighbour, hate your enemy. But I tell you, said Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A complete change of mindset. So who can support young people then as we seek to bring about this transformation? Perhaps it's time to consider why we had a reading this morning from the book of Exodus. Thank you very much for reading and I do apologise for those names. Well, Moses had a problem. God had invited Moses up Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights and given him detailed instructions about how to build a tabernacle or sanctuary where he would dwell among his people. In fact, he gave him seven chapters worth of instructions, and I think Moses would have needed a tape recorder or a phenomenal Bletchley Park memory to begin to manage to record it all. Because in the end, all God gave him was two tablets containing the covenant documents, which would go in the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, You know, that's the Ark that was made famous by the Harrison Ford film Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, Uh, but I digress. Anyway, well, having been given these instructions and having come back down the mountain to see the people again in the wilderness, Moses had to work out how on earth the tabernacle was going to be built. 
So firstly, he called the people together and told them to contribute all the necessary materials, the wood and the textile and the oils and the metals and the stones, because community involvement and commitment were essential. But then, as is so often the case with strategic leaders, he needed craftsmen with practical skills to actually get the job done. Q, Bezalel and Holiab. Firstly, God had given them the ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. Fine, but they couldn't do it all themselves. More importantly, they'd been given by God the ability to teach others. Because as we know, lots of people have knowledge and skills, but not everybody has the ability to teach others. And this vital ability was going to display itself in the construction of this sanctuary tabernacle, and is absolutely crucial today. And it's essential that we all recognize and support those who are engaged in teaching, those who have the ability to teach others, both in our schools and in our church context with young people here. We need to value education in all its forms, not just academic courses, but also the vocational and skill-based courses, because young people need to be able to discover and develop their own God-given gifts. And we should not impose a false hierarchy of the value of the many gifts that have been given. Let's remember that Jesus himself had a long apprenticeship as a carpenter before embarking on the ministry God had given him later. And as well as passing on skills to others, teachers also have a significant influence on the lives of the young people through the relationships they build up. When working with a specialist tutor team at Hills Road, I'd often ask tutors to reflect on the individual lives which they had influenced in the past year. Perhaps students who would never have made it to the end of the course without their support or intervention in some way. Perhaps contact with past students who come back and shared stories about their future direction as a result of the guidance they'd received in college. And as students' first names were written up on the whiteboard, it helped those individual tutors to recognise the value of their input, sometimes lost in a sea of problems being dealt with, acknowledging that lives had indeed been transformed. And I hope that all teachers here, along with all those working with young people, will always take time to reflect on the influence they've had on the young people in our care. If necessary, asking others to help us remember, as we can sometimes be blind to the influence that we've had on others. So teachers have this vital role. What about the role, finally, of families in education? One of the most amazing stories recently about a father's commitment to education and the influence he has had is that of the father of Malala. Malala, the Pakistani girl, who leapt to media prominence last year when she was shot by a member of the Taliban who objected to the fact that her father had created a school to educate young women in that male-dominated culture. Malala's father had trained as a teacher and was passionate about making the advantages of education available to all children, regardless of wealth or gender. And as Malala continues her recovery from that shooting and has spoken at the United Nations, her father is now 
a United Nations education advisor. And it's widely reported that education needs to be a partnership between schools and families and that it can be an uphill struggle for schools about the to bring about the development and transformation needed in young people's lives without the close cooperation of parents, even though that's difficult at times. Now, this was recognised among the people of Israel in the upbringing of their children when trying to communicate the values God had laid down for successful community living. We read these words in Deuteronomy. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It's a new meaning to bedtime stories. Opportunities that are always there. And whatever formal education the Israelite children received would hopefully have been backed up by conversations at home. So we cannot and should not try to isolate our children from the contemporary world. And I've always been concerned over the years by the families of certain closed religious groups who have sometimes tried to do this. But we can pray that they will be insulated from harmful effects through our prayers, our practical support, and the insightful conversations we can have with them at critical times. So to conclude, as we reflect on this month's memory verse, we need to seek ways to support those who are disadvantaged in educational opportunities, whether at home or abroad. Nelson Mandela also said, we must use time wisely and remember that the time is always ripe to do good. And hopefully, collectively, in education, we can encourage the transformation of individuals so that in turn, they will help to transform society through doing good, as Nelson Mandela put it. Or in the words of Jim Wallace, who's the chief executive officer of the Sojourners Organization in Washington, D.C., through serving the common good in both professional and community lives. The good news of the gospel preached by Jesus transformed the lives of individuals. Then, empowered by the Holy Spirit, these individuals went and transformed the world. As we saw in the story of Nelson Mandela, Christians have always been in the forefront of education around the world, as well as in this country, in the setting up of so many church schools which expanded hugely in the 19th century. But whatever our specific roles, may we play our part in this ongoing story, transforming individuals and empowering them to transform their communities and workplaces, and perhaps even nations, in the years ahead. Amen.